Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another, our second festival edition of Certified Forgotten. This is, I like this. This is a habit I could get used to, Matt. Yes, um, I enjoy this. <laughs> yeah. Usually I don't let you talk so early, so you're confused as the silence. I, if I this know. is your first time listening to the show, and if you were listening as part of North Bend, congratulations. You found one of the cooler film festivals with a really good lineup this year. We're so glad that you're watching. Um, this is Certified Forgotten. We are a podcast that deals with films that have five or... Oh, I already messed up the hand thing. Five or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, so we deal, we kind of deal with it, the, the stuff in the horror genre that doesn't get noticed. Um, we try and bring a little bit of spotlight to it. It's bad SEO, but it's good for conversation and guests. So we're happy with that. I'm Matt Modigal. I'm an Austin-based film critic. I'm joined as always by this guy. Oh, damn it. This guy, Matt Donata. How you doing, bud? Doing good, bud. It is 90 degrees and I'm probably going to be sweating halfway through this. So I am wearing my... Delta by Dude Bird Party Massacre 3 tank top in celebration. Nice. I, as we started to record, just remembered we're having potentially rolling blackouts in Texas. So this will be fun. This is going to go fine. This is going to go fine. We're Let's right. see if we actually make it the whole recording. Well, if we do, it'll be because we have two awesome guests that we're incredibly excited to have to come today and talk about this film. Donato, can you do the introductions, please? Absolutely. First of all, Mr. Monagle, you're the one that will this into existence. And we bring to the podcast for the first time, it is a bit of a Switchblade Sisters reunion. We bring Katie Walsh, Tribune News Service, LA Times film critic, Miami Nice podcaster, as well as April Wolf, Switchblade Sisters writer and now writer of Black Christmas and a filmmaker. And we'll just leave that vague for things that come up. And I'm going to bring them into camera right now. I hope they're ready. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hi, guys. Thanks for, Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you both for coming on. Um, so for those that have listened to the show before, we like to talk about horror history of our guests because everybody has a cool story of kind of how they got started in the genre before it became an obsession and a compulsion. You know, there was that first really fun experience. So for people that might be, that didn't have the opportunity to listen to Switchblade Sisters, rest in peace. Um, I'd love to kind of hear both of you talk a little bit about your horror origin stories and kind of where and when you first fell in love with the genre. And I'm going to go clockwise. So I'm going to do April 1st. Okay. You guys might hear some purring. My cat's purring very loudly into the mic. <laughs> ASMR. <laughs> some ASMR. The show. <laughs> um, uh, uh, horror, I think, has just kind of always been a part of my life. Um, I've said it before, but, you know, my grandpa, um, who passed this past October, um, he raised me for most of my young life. And he was um, a huge horror fan. The more gore, the better. And, you know, he introduced me to some of the classics and, and also some of the lesser known stuff, uh, deeper cuts that we found at the, the Rite Aid, which used to rent uh, uh, VHSs when we finally got a VCR. And um, so, yeah, uh, he introduced me to all of that stuff. His favorite movie was The Ice Cream Man. Um, and uh, I loved him dearly and kind of just wanted to emulate him. And I really didn't think about how much that influenced me until later on when I was in my 20s and I started watching horror again. And I was just like, I love all this shit. Why wasn't it like, why did I stop? Um, and uh, just kind of found my way back to it. Okay, what's your story? Mine is totally the opposite, which is that my mom was super over overprotective. And I actually wrote about this a little bit in my piece about Carrie for uh, mm -hmm. Certified Forgotten. And um, she was very like, you can't watch this. Like she would try to cover my, she tried to cover my eyes in the river wild when we were in the theater. I was like 12 and I was like, no way. I kind of like batted her away. 
But my mom can't handle violence in movies. And so she was always really trying to protect me from that. And I think my sort of desire to seek out horror as a teenager was uh, was really sort of because it was rebellious and because it was like something that was like forbidden fruit. Um, and I entered the horror genre through, I remember watching the It miniseries like at a sleepover, which was very scary to me. And also through kind of like horror adjacent stuff, like Rocky Horror Picture Show was a huge deal for me in like middle school-ish times. And then all the screams, all the I know what you did last summer movies were like hugely influential because I was a teenager and I would go to the theater with my friends and we were just like laughing and screaming and yelling at the screen. So really that kind, I mean, we were horrible little shitheads for doing that, but also it was just that that collective experience and that immersive experience of being in a theater and like, you know, interacting with something. So that was really my entry into the genre. And then I became really obsessed with Carrie sort of later on in high school. And like, that was my um, like favorite movie. And I also think like I studied, a, I studied horror in college and I made a horror film for my thesis. And then I kind of after college, like got away from it. And then I, I definitely came back to it. So I had that kind of um, same experience as uh, April of, of kind of, leaving it aside for a bit and being like, do I really like this? And then coming back and, and really feeling like falling in love with the genre again. What I want to ask is you can be both kind of that step away thing. Was there, was there anything that, that kind of made the genre feel like it was in a place where you got more excited about it than maybe you had been in a couple of years? Cause I know that like, you know, the mid 2010s, everybody's really excited about Mumblegore. There were all these like really cool trends going on, especially in markets like Austin and, and Los Angeles, where these filmmakers were popping up communities and they were working on really low budget stuff. So for either of you, were there types of films or filmmakers or just kind of overall trends in the industry that made you think like, oh, horror is good. I kind of want to, there's something here that, that was lacking for a little bit that I want to explore a little bit more. For me, I know for sure during the torture porn era was when I kind of fell away from the genre. And so I wanted to see more sort of like fun, campy, self-aware. And I do think there are, like, I think Hustle Part 2 is totally fun and campy and self-aware. And I actually love that movie. But um, I think when it got back to more... I don't know when it got out of the, the torture porn genre was when I kind of came back in. I think I like to have fun. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm, I, you're not alone. I mean, I had that too, I think. And it wasn't a conscious thing. It was just like, Oh, these things maybe just don't interest me at all. But it's so funny because hostile too is also one of those touchstones where you're just like, yeah, that's, you know, like no matter what, that's going to be great. Yeah. Um, uh, it, yeah, there's there's a certain there was a certain kind of attitude, a kind of nihilism that I found um, kind of turned me off post 9/11 uh, stuff for a little while. And so once people felt like they could get that camp back, they could have that fun again um, in in a way that that just didn't feel like everything was like like just dark just nonstop dark, you know, I think I, I, yeah. I really, I really started like that, but also I have to say like around 2004 is uh, around the time when I first saw 
was it around 2004? It must have been 2005 when I first saw May. Um, and when May came out, like on uh, home video, and I was watching that, I, I think I just kept an eye out for smaller horror filmmakers because like, it's just like an indie low budget gem that everyone was telling their friends about. And, and still, I still see people on, you know, Twitter finding May for the first time. And I think that there was a certain kind of like, upcropping of indie filmmakers who were kind of following in Lucky's footsteps uh, after that, that you just had to like search out. It's just that I didn't know where to search them out. I had no mm -hmm. idea. Yeah, and at the time too, if we're talking about like the early 2000s, just like you said, dark is, was the buzzword. Like dark and gritty were the buzzwords of every gritty, remake, yeah. everything that was yeah. coming out. And it was the, the Snyder takeover in a way, and it kind of bled into horror a little bit. And there were still, like you just said, so many of these great indie horror movies that we didn't have the technology at the time to really have the streaming services and the video on demand services to find those films. And you had to go to the blockbuster or dive in Walmart and yeah. it had such like a negative connotation. So I, I like to hear that. I think back and truthfully, I am now discovering a lot of movies I like from the 2000s era. Cause at the time I didn't watch them cause I got turned off by all that stuff. And I spent the 2000s trying to watch like old films that I, am still lacking on. Like I tried to do my ed education when I got into horror in the 2000s. And so like to hear that, like I, I actually kind of do agree like that dark and gritty period where everything was just saturated in shadows and it was all really bleak. I know it was a reaction to a lot of the things that happened in the world, but it, it was a tough period for horror. There was a kind of, um, uh, kind of, it wasn't like a misogyny, but it was like a different kind of like, because there's always been some kind of misogyny in horror like it's just like you know like it's kind of baked into some of like the the earlier classics and sometimes it's purposeful and sometimes it's not but there was a certain kind of like um uh male exclusivity that was happening at that time too that felt like like we had we had stopped thinking about um uh, in terms of like the, the movies that were getting like the budget, like women as any kind of like um, a person or character that was like a halfway, I don't know, it's hard to describe, but there was like, she was no longer kind of cardboard of like some of like the cheaper 80s slashers and things, but also she didn't have a character. So there was just like this weird, like a purgatory of women. <laughs> <laughs> that time where nobody knew how to express those characters and we didn't you know like a lot of women weren't getting the budget to make their own movies and, and that kind of thing yet so it was just it felt like a it felt really hard to find the things that i enjoyed and loved yeah well, there was definitely that... like a like big budget horror at that time it was like i like i'm thinking of the halloween movie that jessica beale was in i can't even remember which one that was but it was just like taut glistening torso like low-rise jeans like that was kind of the you know sexual objectification of women but then also like quasi empower like you know like trying to make her the 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 you know heroine but then kind of like not getting it right and i'm just i all i can imagine from that era is just like remake like big budget shiny remakes of classics that were like kind of missing the mark for me yeah i and it's it's that's a hard one too because I'm I, I write a remake column for Blade Disgusting so I'm going one by one through all of those movies and like right. yeah so Je Jessica Biel was in that Texas Chainsaw remake and oh, that's actually oh, regarded as like it's it's like one of the highest like beloved ones of all like the remakes of that era like that one gets the most love out and I, I think next to it like the Friday gets a little bit um, and it is interesting to see which of the ones that like really took off. But does I, it like stand up to does it stand up to to today you know. 
the Texas so Chainsaw. Texas, I was going to say Texas Chainsaw <laughs> is the next one I'm going to hit because it's like in such hot demand. I, I keep oh, okay. kind of forgetting it's there, but everyone keeps saying Texas Chainsaw is one of the best. I'm like, all right, you all like beat me over the head with it. I really have to go back and revisit it because I did revisit things like The Hitcher and Friday the 13th. And mm -hmm. I think breaking away from that time period and My Bloody Valentine too. I, I adore the first My Bloody Valentine, like the original. And then to see what they did with the remake, we all kind of had a period where remakes were coming out like left, left and right and in, in the mainstream. So something like My Bloody came out and I think the turnoff factor was just, it was a remake. Everyone didn't want to like it for that reason. And going back and revisiting, I'm going to highlight My Bloody Valentine because it's a really nifty thriller. Like it does the ridiculousness of the first movie. I, I think the first movie having the mining atmosphere a little better, but the remake, what it does with Jensen Ackles and what we're doing with that entire mystery and allure, it actually pulls off another slasher surprise. You know, like you don't know who the killer is until the end. And I revisit that. And I'm like, this thing is so much fun. Like I, I forgot. I think we all just kind of got turned off by the dark and the gritty. And after a while, we just didn't want to see those remakes at the time, but re yeah. resurfacing it's, it's been kind of like illuminating. Yeah. There's also like the sense too where we were coming from the 90s and early 2000s where horror was actually being shot on film stock. And I think that film stock is just one of those things where like it feels almost or felt almost integral to the genre of uh, having things that feel not as crisp necessarily where there's, you know, like there's a certain kind of like not knowing and just like the, you know, like obviously like you know even seeing something on vhs sometimes it's just like it feels like it enhances what you're watching um just for this particular genre and so when we had like access to kind of cheaper digital and we, all of a sudden everything was being shot on digital i think it was a like a sh it was i remember it being like a shock for me it was just it like was, yeah. these don't look like the movies that i'm used to watching and that i had been watching for you know like decades and so i i think that it was pretty easy for people to dismiss them not just for them being remakes but just for the fact that they they looked different and we didn't have the visual vocabulary to even like uh, digest what was what was on the screen at that time in some ways so yeah, and it's, you know, nostalgia works on a 30-year cycle, right? That's kind of the idea is that the things that you liked when you were 8, 10 years old, when you're 40 years old, suddenly you have enough purchasing power to actually invest in those. So mm -hmm. it kind of makes sense that turn-of-the-century horror was in this exploitation space because that's what 1970s horror would have been. So those people that grew up, you know, the Eli Roths of the world, when they grew up and said, hey, I'm going to make movies, they gravitated towards the stuff that they cut their teeth on when they were a kid. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. And, you know, it's it, it'll be now that we're kind of we're inching towards the 90s as like prime renaissance for filmmakers that grew up in the 90s and were influenced by 90s horror and want to f explore elements of 90s horror on film. It'll be interesting to see how, you know, in a few years we go through that like game of telephone with like 70s exploitation into torture porn in the early 2000s into 2030s horror filmmakers who were raised on that and kind of see where all of that shakes loose because it's going to be. It's going to be weird. It's going to be a genre like folding in on itself several times. Yeah. The Saw revival that I've been seeing happening on Twitter and, and Letterboxd because of Spiral has been really interesting. I'm like, why is everybody watching all of these? But obviously, they're, I, I mean, I know why they're watching them, but it's, it's interesting. I, I don't know. I just think that genre just like doesn't do it for me. And yeah, so that happens. There's tons of subgenres that are not going to do it for everyone. Yeah. I've, I don't I've got two. <laughs> there's two that don't do it for me nothing i can do about it <laughs> well april what, earlier what are, you were talking 
Oh well, yeah. We now we got to know. I, I was gonna know. say, what are those two? Yeah. What are the two? If you if you I, can tell. I mean, fantasy is real hard for me. Fantasy is real real hard. I think I've, I've said this before because I I get I feel like really alienated from a lot of my my friends who are nerds because I'm I'm not I've never was a nerd you know, um, I so I. I have a lot of nerd friends and I want to fit in with them. And there's just like, Oh yeah, they grew up reading comic books and they grew up reading like the most, like books with like the silliest fantasy titles. And I'm just like, this is real. And I'm like, I respect all of it. I respect all of my D and D friends as well. Cause like their imaginations are just wild, but it's just something that like makes me fall asleep and I cannot help it. It's like a narcolepsy of the genre. And I, and I feel awful when that happens but um it's that and then like hard sci-fi it's the same i think it's just like sometimes the world building is just like uh too so much of the world building i can't handle it there's just so many horses or like space horses or <laughs> you don't want anything with a map in the front of the bug <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was gonna say what is that martin star line from party down both hard sci-fi and fantasy are bullshit for you yeah <laughs> yeah God, I love that character. Oh, um, but yeah, those are my two that I just have a real hard time with. I can I can get down with anything, but for some reason, it's just those two. But if they cross over into a different genre, then I'm just like, oh, sometimes fantasy adventure is good for me. Sometimes fantasy horror works for me. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, like I would say, Mandy is one of those crossover mm. things for me, where I'm just like, I watch it and I'm like. Am I going to be able to hang with it? And I was like, oh, okay, I can hang with it. Um, <laughs> the chainsaw fight, you're like, I can hang. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a, <laughs> it's combining things that makes everything palatable for me. So yeah, I agree. I will not. I have no interest whatsoever in haunted house movies. They just don't do it for me. But if it's actually a haunted spaceship, then like suddenly that's I'm 110 percent over. So sometimes wow. you just need like a fresh coat of paint on something, yeah. and then, then you're you're totally right there, and you're totally interested. Yeah. Well, April, earlier you were talking a little bit about kind of like that period in horror and the fact that, you know, representation in film for women was not necessarily where it could have ended up. Um, so I, that feels like a really feels like a really natural segue to talk a little bit about Switchblade Sisters, because that was a project that you started and then Katie got involved in as well, where you're talking to women filmmakers, writers, directors, actors, you know, about the genre or really any films a lot of the time that kind of inspired them. So. What was the what was the impetus for that, and how did you decide that this was something that you were like, I, this, I somebody's got to do it. It's got to be me. Uh, I mean, it it was just weird um, because it didn't seem like anyone was doing a ton of stuff to emphasize um, all women in genre. Like we had a theory of film festival, which shout out to those folks who have been kind of championing women and horror specifically. But um, for me, you know, Switchblade Sister was is, is about all genre films. So it's like, it's, you know, trying to get uh, people to understand that women want to direct action films, that they want to do like crime noir stuff, you know, like that they want to do like heist movies and that kind of thing. And so, um, I just thought it would be a really great way to kind of feature a lot of these women filmmakers and let people know the kinds of things that they're interested in. Because honestly, like some of the guests that we've had, um, you know, like even just like high level, sometimes they'll tell me that they came on the show because they 
wanted this exec that they were meeting with to see how interested they were in a specific genre because they really want wow. this directing job. Like it's kind of like proving their credibility because they get to, you know, wax poetic for almost a full hour on how they would make a movie if they were making, you know, like this action film, like if they were doing point break, like, oh, that's interesting. This is how I might do it. And um, it, it was kind of like a sneaky way to to do that, but also just to talk about genre films and craft. And, and I love talking about craft um, and I love talking about how people made things. And, and so that was just, um, it was just a way to get people to remember um, uh, women filmmakers names, I guess. And um, Katie, you can answer this question too. I'd love to get both of your opinions on it. But I'm kind of curious how you struck that good balance between you know industry and film criticism, kind of those those twin worlds. Because you know when you started it, I think you were at that point better known, April, as a film critic, and you'd written for LA Weekly, RIP, and a bunch of other places for years. And when I started listening to Switchblade Sisters, the thing that really stood out to me is the fact that it was marrying two worlds that really they don't cross as much as you'd think, like the film history film criticism world and like the production worlds, you know, the goal seems to be to move from one to the other or to like kind of keep those a little bit separated. And yet when you were having guests on, um, both of you were having guests on, you were having these really detailed and interesting conversations that bridged the gap, you know, people that were like, yeah, well, I studied film forever. So of course I can talk about this stuff. Things that people might forget about that or people that have been watching films their whole life and really picked up on intuitive parts of filmmaking because of that. So I, either of you, I'm just, I'm curious how you found that balance evolving over time of like history and criticism and production and both of those working so well for the show. I mean, I, I, I think Katie can go first on this. <laughs> um, you know, it's an, I've had a very varied career. I've kind of been Goldilocks and how I got to what I'm doing now. I was a film major in undergrad and made shorts with my friends and worked in the industry. I actually worked at Lionsgate. That was my first job. So I was like working on, I was in the PR department. So I was working on Saw and Hustle Part 2 and all of these movies and um, like, you know, on the publicity for them. And uh, and then I went to grad school and then I, you know, transitioned into full-time writing. You know, the writing was always kind of happening in the background as my side hustle. But I think it's really important for critics and writers to have like varied experiences and to know how a movie is made. Like, I think you need to know how hard it is to make a movie because then you will realize that every single little indie movie is a miracle because it just got made, even though it is so bad. And I have reviewed so many bad indie movies, but like, I know that someone put all of their like life savings or their heart or their energy into it. And so I think like, you know, you really need to know as a critic, like when to punch down and when to punch up. And um, I really try to not punch down and also, you know, recognize that like, hey, you pulled this off and it's terrible, but you did it and it's done and that's a miracle. So I just think like having a, a variety of experience, experience really lends to criticism. And then it also will lend to how you talk to filmmakers and, um, I think that I, I, you know, before I did Switchblade, I had like moderated a ton of Q and A's with women filmmakers, and I had interviewed women filmmakers, and like, I tried really hard to 
not ask them a ton. I didn't try. I, I remember one time I did several Q and A's with Lynn Shelton and I, I had asked her, I was very green and I had asked her like, well, what's it like being a woman in the industry? And like, she was just like, I don't want to talk about it. like, stop saying that, you know? So I learned very quickly <laughs> to like, stop asking that question. Like, what's it like being a woman director? And cause they just want you to say, what's it like being a director? And, and what kind of lens did you use on this? And like, how did you approach the writing? And and I think that women want to be asked those questions and want to dig in on craft. So you have to push yourself as an interviewer. I mean, I had to, I looked to April who set such an amazing standard of conversation on Switchblade that I knew I had to like bring it every single time. I couldn't just show up with like, well, I like this part. What about this? Like, you know, I wanted it to be a fun conversation, but I also wanted it to be rigorously researched and to ask good questions. So you have to push yourself as a, as a podcast host or a moderator or a critic to like know your stuff, I think. Yeah, I think um, I, I had a circuitous path to get to film criticism as well. Cause like, I really, I really wasn't a film critic for very long. Um, my first job was LA Weekly. Before that, I was just kind of volunteering for some sites that didn't pay me just because I wanted to talk about film history and film, you know, it's just like, um, okay, I want to write an essay on black girl because I love this movie, you know, like, and, and I would just go and research it and they would be like, great, we need content for the site. But I was working, um, training to be like a reporter, like outside of the entertainment industry. I was working on uh, crime and social justice um, stories for outlets. That was kind of my primary thing. Um, and so I was doing a lot of research and like was actually about to go into court reporting and stuff too. Um, but I got a degree in playwriting and was just kind of making stuff on my own um, for a really long time. I had always really thought that I was going to be a filmmaker, but when I got into criticism, I just thought maybe I can do both because some of my favorite filmmakers of all time did both, you know? They're like the Paul Schraders of the world who like know how to like, um, you know, for all his problems. <laughs> minus Facebook. Paul Schrader minus Facebook. <laughs> Mark Chan Wook was a critic. Yeah, there's like a, there's yeah. like a, a whole host of really, really thoughtful people. And those are also my my favorite people to to listen to, to uh, commentaries from and Q and A's. Like you always want to talk to those people because there's there's such a, a deep process behind it. And they've they've thought about it from all angles. And so I've always kind of thought that I was going to do both. Um, it's just that the industry kind of doesn't al allow that um, you to be critical of things necessarily <laughs> if they're coming out, like if you are also making films, but I can, I still get to talk about things if I like them, you know, like I, I only talk about things if I'm just like, oh, I think this is great. Then I will like go through, dissect it and, you know, kind of use my critical eye for good. Um, I'm definitely never going to pan anything publicly again. Uh, that's just not where I am. And also that was not my favorite part of the job anyway. It was like, it, I just wanted to ignore the things I didn't like and let people kind of talk about those um, if they if they enjoyed it. But, um, you know, I'm kind of getting like the best of both worlds. Like if I get to, if I get asked to write some essays on some new films that I like, then I will probably still do it even if I'm, you know, making my TV shows and movies. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I like that you were talking about preparation too, because, you know, that's definitely something that stood out and something... I feel guilty about every time I listen to Switchblade Sisters, even the older episodes, it's just like, oh, God damn, they prepped. And when so, I, you know, 
<laughs> I just, I always tell the story, but when I did my first episode of Switchblade and April sent me her Google document, I was like, what the hell? This is so many pages. I was like, oh no, I have to like really, I have to really bring it. But it was a good example. And I was always really well prepared thanks to her example. So uh, I knew I had to, you know, be on top of my stuff as soon as she sent me that Google doc. But, you know, in fairness, it was like 14 point font. <laughs> Earth, yeah, you, you know. gotta read it. <laughs> but yeah, I had to be able to read it. My <laughs> yeah. eyesight is just really awful. So yeah, um, that's true. But yeah, I was but I was impressed at the depth of the research. So I knew that I had to, you know, keep the standards up. Yeah. There's there's also like a cool thing too that when when I was researching, I think I would sometimes go overboard because I love researching, especially because like I'm stealing everything from my own projects where I'm just like yoink, that goes in my pitch deck, all that kind of shit. Um and uh, so I would read about like a technique or something that a filmmaker used and I'd be like, oh, God damn, now I have to research this because I want to use it for my own personal life. And so I keep all of my old scripts from Switchblade because it was actually just great research for me putting together any of my projects in the future. So it's like for me, it was like film school. You guys like I don't know if Katie felt like she learned a lot, but I felt like every episode I was learning something new. So. Yeah, that's the that's the problem when you're super passionate is you start connecting those dots and all you want to do is like chase them. I grad school for me was very much the same way. You like read an essay and then there's like all of the cliff notes and footnotes in the back and you're like, okay, I guess I'll just read these. And then there's all those footnotes and you're like, well, okay, fuck, okay, I guess I'll just read these too. Yeah. The hard part for me about that is when I would like start pulling the thread when I was in grad school and I'd be like, oh, I need to read this article and this article. And I would inevitably find someone writing the article that I was intending to write. And I'd just like throw the book across the room and be like, fuck, I need a new idea. <laughs> well, may I suggest starting a podcast where you only review movies with five or fewer reviews and Rotten Tomatoes? Because <laughs> yeah, ain't nobody talking about any of these titles. So pretty much just Greenfield for you. <laughs> And that was my excellent segue um, to talk about today's film. So we're going to, uh, because we know that probably a lot of people haven't seen this because, you know, purpose of the show, uh, we're going to play the trailer for y'all real quick. And when we come back, we're going to talk about, I'm going to go with the, the other name because I like it better, Rusulka. I'm going to talk about Rusulka. And it should play soon. Soka begins life as an ordinary young woman. But then one day, while lovesick, she drowns in a body of water. She wakes up transformed. A living ghost. A siren. And she is forever cursed with an unholy want. comes near her again. So that is The Siren or Rasulka. It is a 2019 horror film about uh, two men that are vacationing, visiting, vengeancing at a lake and the young woman in the water who may or may not be drowning the inhabitants. 
Uh, it is the, I believe, the second film, second feature film by Perry Blackshear, who is the director of They Look Like People. And this is actually the second of three films, I think, in his little uh, creative group that he has. All three of the main actors and Blackshear is writer-director. Uh, all work together as producers and filmmakers. And they have a third, another film coming out, I think, in a year's time called Ogre um, that kind of keeps this collective together. Blackshear has described Paul Thomas Anderson as one of his inspirations. And he definitely has that like early PTA group of people in a cabin. I'm going to write for all my friends kind of vibe. And the result, at least in this case, is The Siren. So um, we kind of gave you guys a list of films to choose from. And I'm kind of curious. I'm going to start with you, Katie. What was it about this one that stood out for you? Well, I really like They Look Like People. And I had reviewed it for the LA Times in 2016 and was really struck by just the mood and tone and like what they achieve and with so little and uh, how it just was super original to me and something I had not seen before. So I was very impressed with that film. And I did, I had shot over two options to April and I think she had seen the other one. And then we decided to go with this one because we were both intrigued by it. So. Is this, do you think, just so we can get our terminology correct for the, the last bit of this podcast, are we, do we call this a mermaid movie? Is this a mermaid movie? Are we, it's a Russian folklore fairy tale inspired Hans Christian Andersen E movie, but for shorthand. I think it's a, I think it's a murderous mate, a mermaid. Yeah. Movie. I think it fits in with like the lure and with nighttime and with all of those, right? And Undine, which just came out. Oh Yeah. Then I'm good. We're gonna call this a mermaid movie for the rest of the conversation. Okay. So okay. let's um let's talk about anything. Cat hair all over my face. Can you see it? Oh my god. <laughs> Just clouds. Just clouds. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe we're gonna try and start with you then, April, because I don't know if the allergies are gonna kick up or not. But it's gonna be wild. For first impressions on this one, getting a chance to watch it. Uh, I felt like it was one of those movies where you can tell. First off, that the budget is low, but they're being really creative with the resources that they have and with the time that they have. There's just certain things that I appreciate about the movie that kind of harken back to, you know, like the early filmmaking techniques where there's definitely like a couple of shots where you're like, you know, day day for night, you know, mm. um, and certain things of just like using um, post-production techniques that um, make you feel a little bit off kilter, even if they seem, you know, quote unquote wrong in a different kind of movie that might not be genre. Um, so I think that there's just a lot of creativity and they're not trying to tell a story actually that's too complicated necessarily. I appreciated that because at first I was just like, okay, there's like something that has to be explained with this person who is mute and how it happened. But I think that it was more about just a mood, like what Katie was saying. It's just like there, there's a certain mood and they're really riding on that. And, and you know, it's like the perfect length of time. So I, I thought it was really mm -hmm. quite, quite well done. Yeah, I was. I grew up in Southeast Alaska, and I was drawn to the story because in Southeast Alaska, there's the legend of the Kushtaka, which is a Clinket and Haida spirit animal that basically will go out. Um, it was notorious for if you were near a body of water, it would make the sound of either a woman crying or, a, or like a woman weeping or a baby crying. And as soon as you got like past the point of no return in the water, it would drag you under and drown you. So mm -hmm. it's interesting, you know, this, this is, if you read interviews with Blackshear, he talks a lot, of course, about Hans Christian Andersen. He talks a lot about Russian folklore is inspiring this. 
But there is, I think, a, a certain timeless element to this kind of mythology that you can find a version of this in a bunch of different cultures and even in a bunch of different regions here within the United States. And I think that makes it that makes it relatable in a way that, you know, like I think other types of films won't because because the mythology of this is so poorly defined, you can kind of translate it into your own local customs and folklore. Mm -hmm. Donato, what do you think? So, all right. Like one of my favorite romantic horror films is Spring. I know that's not like an unpopular opinion. It's like a majority <laughs> opinion. Um, so so brave, I'm not you? breaking the bank on that one. I know. Yeah, that's not a brave statement to say. But I, I mean, I'm just drawn immediately to the fact that you know how we perceive monsters, how love can be monstrous, and all these different things. So I, I was immediately taken by that aspect of it, and to hit on the cinematography as well. Uh, I believe which Perry Blackshear also did, uh, if I'm correct. I, I did check IMDb to be, to be super certain. But so, you know, so you have Blackshear doing so much of the work on this indie film. And it, it, it's really striking at times. And you have the scenes where the siren uh, is just pressed against like a little rock formation uh, in the lake and just sitting there alone, isolated. And you really get this sense that they're making... And they're making a statement about, again, how we perceive monsters and how we see these creatures and immediately is evil. And are they doing some nasty things? Yes, they might drown people. Uh, but then to actually like a, give a personality and give characteristics and attributes, the way that they build the siren, as we'll keep saying, the Rusalka. mermaid, how we, how we do that, the Rusalka. Thank you. Um, it, it really brought me in and it really just kind of connected on ways that for an indie budget, for doing exactly what it did, uh, performances cinematography, every little detail was pretty beautiful. So that was, that, that was enough for me. Yeah. And as the film unfolds, it's it, like you, like you said, I think April said this, it's a, it's a pretty simple story. A guy goes to a cabin in the or a lake house on the, to kind of kill some time and resolve some unresolved issues that we never really learn what they are. And we don't need to, because that's not integral to the story. Just me time, general religious culty me time. Um, but he, you know, he meets this lady in the water and the two of them are kind of being hunted by a guy whose partner uh, was drowned or he believes was drowned by some kind of a creature. And that's basically it. It's it's the the man and the mermaid. And then it's kind of the murderous or potentially murderous next door neighbor and how they kind of bounce off each other in, in interesting ways. Um, and it's it's a good like it, it's one of those films that I think there's an intimacy there that really comes from the fact that, that you believe that these people all work together a lot, right? Like there, there is with the characterization, there almost feels like there's sort of a shorthand that they're able to communicate with each other, that they know exactly what needs to be explicit, what needs to be implicit. Because a lot of times with a film like this, I feel like I recognize the things that aren't being resolved. Um, and sometimes that can bother you and sometimes it can't. And in this film, there's a lot of threads that just, they don't need to tug on because that's not really the story they set out to tell. And I think that's a testament to having a tight group of, actors a tight group of producers and collaborators is that you can kind of find those boundaries a little bit more organically for yourselves he said yeah. having made zero films but it all seems correct yeah yeah there's i think the i don't know the the woman who plays the Rasalka, what her name is but um, margaret ying drake is her name she had a lot of really lovely physical moments because so much of her um performance had to be so physical she was often really alone in shots and you know there's just like a really great intimacy that that you can see there's one moment where i don't know if i'm giving anything away where um uh she's kind of holding the mute man and um kind of holds him underwater but before she does it she 
puts her head, her chin onto his forehead and then just kind of like does this. And you can see that like, just with like that one little head movement, like there's a lot of, um, uh, there's a lot of ideas fighting in her head of like who she's going to be and what she's going to do. And so it's just like, just that one little like head movement was actually quite terrifying. So it's just like, it's a nice thing to kind of find the, the horror within um, just these really, um, really thoughtful performances. And kind of the play off that really quickly, the, there's another great physical moment, uh, again, with Mar Margaret Ying Drake, where there's a child and there are definitely implications whether or not they are carried through, but you have the Rasulka in front of a child and we know the Rasulka has drowned many people. And as she's playing peekaboo with the child, gets right in her face and is reaching out her hands and it, it could be the moment where she grabs a child and brings it underwater, but instead the child just high fives her and her face <laughs> kind of lights up and she goes from that scary shadowy figure because again, cinematography is painting her completely black. We don't really see her, but all of a sudden then the high five illuminates her. And she is, again, we, we see her as a normal person, you know, quote unquote, as we would. And her face is just so full of a minute, just not, sorry, like a second of joy. And then it goes right back to the horror because she is just imprisoned in this form. And it's a testament to what you've just been saying, April, in the sense that like this actress is bringing so much to a role that could have been a stereotypical monster, but we have these human characteristics coming out that we can connect with and relate with. And immediately that facade of a monster just falls away. Yeah. I, one of the things I love about this film is, is her performance kind of, as a foil to the two men in a way, like she is, there is an element of playfulness and tonally it's a little bit different, even though she is also a monster. Um, and I think that that sort of, it kind of puts you off balance a little bit with her. I was also watching this movie and I'm like, I like her life. Like she's got her little <laughs> trinkets. She's swimming around. She's drowning men. I was like, I want what she has. Like, <laughs> I was weirdly appealed by her. I, I found her life very appealing. <laughs> wow, I did not realize this was like a Rorschach test. For... <laughs> I was like, this looks kind of cool. Was like, I was like, oh, that's life. sad. And Katie's like, hell yeah, all right, I'm moving in. She's got a little rock where she puts her little trinkets and it looked cool. Damn. But that also is like totally what I did my entire childhood. So drowned people at a lake in upstate. <laughs> wait, wait, yeah. Yeah. Clarify. <laughs> no, I just I, there's I, a I lot of unsolved murders. <laughs> you check out I, her hometown um, off of Saint Croix. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> I grew up in the in the Virgin Islands in Saint Croix, and I grew up swimming in the ocean and like collecting weird little shells and rocks and playing games with them, just like being a, a water child. So I don't know. It looked good to me. <laughs> About lakes, life. I don't fuck with lakes. I I don't want to get in a lake. Those freak me out. I only swim in the ocean. Yeah, sitting no. water. Sitting water is evil. Yeah. Uh, well, I want to ask because we were talking a little bit about uh, Tom earlier, who's the main character, and he is mute. But it's not again. It's not something that the film is processing. It's just his state of being. He is mute. And I'm curious what y'all thought of kind of the way that they worked that into the story because I feel like horror in particular over the last few years has had a lot of really good conversations about the way the disabilities are portrayed in film. And, you know, if it's empowering, if it's regressive, it's a, if it's exploitative, um, 
I thought that this added a lot to the character, but I'm kind of I'm I'm curious where y'all landed with this, and if you felt that it was a good idea to uh, to add a little bit of complexity, if it was something that they didn't really think through all the way to the end. Just thoughts on that. I really liked that you have this myth that is about a woman who or a creature, a siren, a Rasalka who who typically is known to sing or lure people with her voice. And on the soundtrack, you do get some of these, you know, a, a woman singing and kind of hints at that. Uh, and then to have a main character who she seduces who does not have a voice and how he works around that and their relationship. And I thought that was just like a really interesting sort of symbolic way to approach this, uh, this myth that many people know. And I do, what I do really like about this film is that it is taking sort of a familiar mythological character and then, and a, and a familiar genre, and then kind of turning it upside down and saying, oh, this is a romance and we're gonna explore what that looks like. And here's this monster who we could see as monstrous, but also we see her as in love and, and as sexual. And like, what does, how does that make us feel about her? And, and how does that make us feel about him? So. I thought it was an interesting choice to do that. And I also love that he, the way that Evan um, Dumochel, who who plays Tom, um, you know, the way that he plays it is just like, eh, yep, can't talk. And he, you know, it doesn't seem to limit him in any way, except for great... the scene where the phone is ringing and he can't answer. <laughs> well, they have that, that great shot at the very beginning where he has the wristband and it says, I'm mute yeah. and then flips it over, but I can hear. I thought that was a nice touch. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's nice that they're kind of flipping things uh, on, the, on the head, you know, like, if you think to like the Little Mermaid and the idea that like someone loses their voice, like it's part of the mythology. It's just a little bit rearranged. There's someone who's who's a little bit weaker in this situation. Um, so I, I appreciate it that it, for that, I think. And Katie, you had mentioned earlier talking about, um, you know, the, the mermaid character, the way that she gets to be kind of a sexual creature. I think one of the things that I was not prepared for with this film is that this is actually one of the hornier horror films I feel like I've seen in a minute. And like, it, and I mean that as a compliment, like it yeah. has two sexually charged characters that has really good chemistry. It finds new and interesting ways of kind of bringing them physically into contact with each other without actually, you know, resorting to any kind of the explicit stuff that sometimes films of this budget feel they need to throw into the mix. So it, it, we are used to, Donata, you had mentioned spring earlier. We were used to like a lot of these kind of love stories. I kind of feel like in horror, we don't necessarily get, again, I'll say horror as horny as this one did. So um, I'm going to throw it out to anybody who wants to talk about the horniness of Rasulka. You're more than welcome to jump in right here. <laughs> Well, I was at the end of this movie. I was like, they just wanted to get Evan's shirt off. Like <laughs> the amount of times they had him like stripping down, and I'm like, I mean, he's a hot guy. And I think that what's also interesting though is I felt a lot of those scenes were like her fantasy of like what she's imagining they're gonna do, and so it's this like horniness from the from the perspective of the mermaid, and I think that was really cool and interesting because she's like, yeah, that guy, I'm not gonna drown him. I'm gonna fuck him. <laughs> but like she's always wearing a dress too, and like that, I, I just 
to even more your counterbalance there where Evan is shirtless and basically just in his underwear for part of the film and she's in a full dress and just swimming around. So it, the objectification is flipped completely and we don't have that typical mermaid look, I guess I would say like quote, quote, but, um, but yeah, they dance around that. And I think, you know, Monogle to say that it is a horny movie, you're hundred percent correct, but like, it's not like bow chicka wow wow horny. It, it, it's it, like, there's a woman's that's choir. That's critical term. That's correct. Yeah, exactly. Like there's a woman's <laughs> choir the entire time because we do have a mute character. So we don't get a lot of dialogue in these scenes. Uh, the Rasulka tries to talk to Tom and Tom just immediately is just like, can't do it. So we don't have a lot of exchange there. So we get quiet scenes. We get, you know, muted scenes, but the woman's choir over laid atop, it, it just becomes this like little slow crescendo and it's never over and it's never again, objectifying. It is just this coming together of two people, creatures, whatever you want to call it. And again, I'll use the word like beautiful, like it, it like it, the shimmering of the lake and the sunlight and everything hitting it. It is a really deep romance. I, I think, I think you're right in terms of like it, being maybe more of an intimate movie than it is yeah. um, lustful. And the, that intimacy is kind of heightened by the camera work being so close to these actors. And that these actors, I mean, the fact that they had made another movie together um, and or several is not surprising to me because they have the kind of closeness of a theater troupe in the way that like you can kind of throw any actor into that situation and they feel physically comfortable there because so often you have um, actor who's actors who've never met each other who have to like form relationships and then and then things feel almost like campy and unreal you know because they're they're so they're so um a, like a, a play of a play of a play of someone who's falling in love or someone who's like in, in, um, in a romantic relationship. Whereas these actors, I can feel immediately that intimacy that they have together. And, and I just appreciate that, you know, that's the kind of intimacy that you get when you usually when you have to like have, you know, like, do like a blue Valentine, like extreme experiment, you know, where you just like mm -hmm. force people to live together to like, to become intimate so that like their sex scenes seem real, you know? Um, and, you know, there are great actors who can transcend that, but physical intimacy is one of the more difficult things to do convincing on a screen. Like it is a really hard thing. And sometimes, sometimes I think actors shy away from sex scenes because of that, not even just because of nudity, though that has its own trappings, but because it, it's its own form of, of separate acting that is really, really hard to achieve. But these characters I think are just really great. They seem so comfortable with, with each other, you know? So yeah, and I think like going back to the intimacy comment, it's like I think one of the most compelling images for me was like the two of them waking up or sleeping next to each other, and and that kind of like uh, the it connotes like lovers waking up together and like the the coziness of that, and that was something that I was like, oh, that's so mm. lovely, and and that was the thing that kind of it's not about you know bow trick a wow wow if you will, it's about the moments that they share. <laughs> Well, that is, I'm glad that's an audio clip forever. <laughs> you need that too, because you're basically, I mean, everybody knows if you've seen Beauty and the Beast style stories, that's this being flipped, you know, everybody knows that there's going to be this pull and they're going to end up together or at least like try and consummate their love. And I think that that's those little moments that, that you talk about, um, April and Katie are so integral to making that work because, you know, you have to believe there has to be a moment where Tom finds out. And there is that moment where Tom finds out and he has to stay and you have to buy him staying and you have to believe that he, that like 
that his reasons for staying are deeper than just sexual attraction. And by pulling all of these little, these little instances, these little flashbacks, these little fantasies that she has together, you're able to do the thing that everybody knows you have to do in order to make this central couple work um, and pull it off in a way that, that actually feels authentic and lived in. And that's, you know, if you have good actors and you see it on screen and it works, you're like, oh, that's great. I, that's, that's a compelling love story. But we have all seen many, many, many movies where they go for that moment. And you're like, why, why are you still here? Like, what is your, this is not, you haven't earned this, this reveal. We all knew it was coming. So it's, it's a credit when, when people that are working with a smaller budget or working with, you know, less well-known actors are able to pull off those moments that you see coming. And you're like, all right, you earned it. I'm, I'm right here with you. Yep. He's, he's definitely going to go back to her. Yeah. And that's why a movie like The Siren, you know, talking about indie specifically, there's nothing else to rely on outside of that chemistry, that dynamic. This is all a character piece. This is all on the characters. We don't have massive set pieces or practical effects uh, that would be on like a blockbuster level or anything of that nature. And I feel like that's what makes indie filmmaking so much harder because when you have the money, you can throw a bunch of things on screen and it will, it will distract from Ne negatives or we'll call them in, in a way like it will distract from the things that might take us out of the film where an indie movie is relying so much on the characters so much on the performers and they're doing so much more of the heavy lifting that i feel like it actually gets more credit in that sense and the, when you see performances like these it just elevates a film like all the way up here because we realize how integral these performances are to to film and maybe other films kind of lessen the performances and, and, and like that like that kind of sucks in that way so i i very much uh, connected the midnight swim to uh the siren in ways uh, talking about intimacy and things of that nature because sarah dina smith does amazing things with the camera work and that's about more exploring the water and it's about sisterhood and things of that nature but still you have the intimacy of going into the water with the characters and uh, april said before it's like the camera's right in your face or sorry right in the char character's face so you don't have anywhere else to go you just have your characters and performers. And when they can carry a film like they do, it just becomes all the more impressive. I mean, you don't even have pages of dialogue, really. You have these like one-sided conversations <laughs> that the two, I mean, it's, you have three main characters and one of them doesn't ever talk. So there, it does, I, I thought Evan Dumochel was great. Like that guy's a movie star. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad to see him working with um, Perry Blackshear and, um, the, the troop that they have, McLeod, McLeod, McLeod Andrews. Mm -hmm. How do you say his name? Um, but you know, because they do have the shorthand, and they are, and and they, the, those guys were the the leads, and they look like people, and and they play friends, and one is having like potentially a mental breakdown, and they uh, obviously have like a very, you know, shared history in, in their performances and and their creative adventures together so it's it's nice to see them together and i thought mcleod was was really great too i mean he's sort of the you have this crazy love story happening and then you have the guy who's like wait she drowned my husband and i'm really upset about that and he's he sort of be, he's like the not only the the realistic part but the you know he's he brings like a darker element of revenge and of grief and it becomes a film that's really about uh, it's about love but it's also about grief and it's about how those things affect people and what they're going to do with their grief or what they're going to do with their love and like what i thought was really interesting about they look like people is like and and this film as well is like it's the horror within right it's not the external 
threat. It's more about what we're thinking, what we're doing. Are you a danger to me because of what's going on in your head? And that's kind of mirrored in this film as well, but it's also a monster movie. So I think like applying that to a mythological monster movie is a really interesting um, approach to what this movie is, a mermaid movie. Yeah, and on Certified Forgotten, we always like to kind of talk about the rediscovery process, right? Because films like this are, there are dozens of really, really quality horror film festivals across the United States, and they are playing dozens of really, really good horror movies every single year. And distribution, you know, opportunities for these films to actually find their audiences are limited. So the question that I have for you all, especially as people that have been in varying degrees on the other side of this from an industry standpoint, is where does Rasulka, where does The Siren find its audience? How does this film, and it is, it's it's a, not a difficult film to find. It's available on Shutter, So it's in the places that horror fans typically think to look at for good horror movies. But what would, what allows something like this to kind of cross over and gain that word of mouth or that cult following um, that it missed on its initial release? That's a hard question. <laughs> it is, but you don't. We're not holding you to the answers. We're not right. going to tell the filmmakers how to how to solve their problems. So you're good on that front. I mean, like, I think, yeah, I think grouping it with more mermaid movies, or if, like, if you like this, then you might like this kind of thing. But also, I think just like the obviously the Black Shear Group or whatever their uh, troop is called, like they are slowly building this body of work that. I think is really interesting. I think is really pushing the boundaries of indie horror filmmaking and, and even the genre boundaries. Um, and so I think they look like people got probably more attention, obviously more attention than this. So it's one of those things where it's like, this is the same vibe, like go out and seek this out. If you liked this, then like watch their follow-up. And if their third movie is also, um, you know, in this vein, I mean, it's one of those, things that it's like, okay, you have to watch the trilogy. Like this is a thematic piece. Cause I really did feel like the two films were talking about the same thing. The log line for the third film, by the way, is that a group uh, or I think it's a group, a pair of siblings grow up and wreak revenge on the childhood monster that frightened them as kids, which seems like pretty much part and parcel for some of the stuff we've seen going on in Black Shear's mind so far. Yeah. 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 I think I think it's weird, you know, Matt was talking, Matt, one of the Matts was talking about it. And I, so I'm just going to say that. Um, I, maybe it was Donato, I can't remember, about the not, not knowing that many romantic things. Oh, yeah, because you said spring was the, so not knowing much like romantic horror. And um, I think that there is a reason for that. And I think that the reason for that is that when it comes to horror, we very often cater to a very specific audience. And we've been doing it for so long that I think it sometimes um, has a like a stranglehold on the genre at times um, because there's only certain things that will kind of break through. And I do think that a movie like this doesn't kind of, it doesn't hit all of the usual marks that you would get for that midnight crowd who's just like, yeah, horror movies, this is my thing. I love it, blood, gore. And then it's just like, actually, this is just like a really thoughtful, <laughs> like intense emotional journey of a mermaid and, <laughs> and it's really hard to kind of convince those people I feel like 
for a movie like this to break through, you do have to do quite a bit of word of mouth um, to people who are more genre adjacent. Cause sometimes like the hardcore thing, like, you know, we'll miss these little gems, I think, because of, you know, like calling it romantic. Um, even if that's something that we might like, it might be something like, oh, we'll just skip it at the film festival. We'll go to something else. Um, and uh, it's, it's just, it's hard, but like you do have to group it with other mermaid movies. But if you think about other mermaid movies, it's just like, okay, how did the lure break through? Well, the lure, <laughs> the fucking Polish disco masterpiece, like, you know, how did that break through? Uh, you know, like, this is just like, this is quiet. And, you know, it's always going to be harder to break those quiet films. So you like, you really do require word of mouth and, you know, like a podcast like yours, kind of like catching people up on, on what it is. Eventually, people are going to catch on to what Blackshear is doing. And they'll be like, Oh, I'll have to search that out. But then the people in the know will be like, Oh, well, have you heard of Rasulka? Um, I'm sorry, you might know it as the siren. Um, <laughs> I do think you make a good point about getting in the genre adjacent crowd. Like my mom, obviously I, I mentioned my mom doesn't like horror. And actually last winter when I was at home, we kind of had a breakthrough. We watched some stuff together, but she was obsessed with La Llorona, the Guatemalan film which is based on the La Llorona um, myth. And she was like, that's not a horror movie. That's not a horror movie. I was like, it is, it's a ghost movie. She's a ghost. And she's like, well, I don't think that's a horror movie. And she has a very limited view of what horror movies are. She thinks it's like chainsaws mm -hmm. and like blood mm -hmm. spurting. And I think she'd like this movie. And I think that there are people who say, oh, horror is not for me, but they don't realize how expansive of a genre it can be. And I think that there are a lot of non-horror people who would really dig what Black is doing because it's so genre-defying. And I also think it appeals to genre fans. And then, but then it's, they're like these psychological mysteries and sort of emotional interpersonal relationship thrillers. So um, yeah, I think that picking up in the genre adjacent people and kind of reeling them in that way is, is, is possibly a way to go. Yeah, there's. I mean, glad that Donato had mentioned the Midnight Swim too, because that movie I think is often underseen. I'm sure that I'm glad that people loved Buster's Malhart. You know, she had a bigger star for that. But um, the Midnight Swim is in one of those adjacent things where she creates a mood. There's, there's so it's like it's I, it's not horror, but it's there's a mood to it that feels kind of like like dread a little bit, you know, and, and so she's, she's creating that. And so I think that it was kind of picked up by some genre people because they're like, Oh, I can vibe with this, but it it's also a crossover one that I think was just doing well on the indie circuit in general, like outside of genre spheres, but there's, uh, you know, like there, hopefully there are people who are kind of like willing to take a chance on, on those types of movies though. Yeah, and I mean, there definitely is the preconception that horror is the horror I know. It is the slasher, killy, gross out. It's what my mom thinks horror is every time yeah. I go home. And she's like, why do you still watch those gross movies? I'm like, because most of them are kind of beautiful and like the gross ones, blah, blah, blah. But it, it, that is very alive because if you go on Shudder, and I, like, I love Shudder, God bless Shudder, but sometimes reading the comments on people sit, like rating what they've watched is a little infuriating because if you read the comments here it's it's a bunch of one star saying this isn't hard take it off shutter like it's people being confused because they don't see this as hard they don't see it as anything scary in that nature and it's not the horror they've grown up on so 
they immediately cast it out because it's different. And if we want to talk about romance and horror, I mean, well, like Bride of Frankenstein is literally a universal monster classic that has inspired so many films after it. And it has inspired Bride of Chucky, which is one of my favorite horror movies of all time. And that is very much based around romance in certain ways. Also very romantic. Exactly. Right. So exactly. That is based around romance and very romantic. And you like Martha Stewart and things like that. But the fact that we can't get more people to like really hop on the romance and horror bandwagon is a little frustrating and that makes it harder to sell because as both of you pointed out that subset of horror who just want their slashers the way that they used to be are never going to come on to something like the siren it is quieter it is i I really hope the perry black sheer troop as we'll call them get their kind of benson and moorhead moment where i do see a lot of similarities here where they're both in you know one of those troops has very much taken off and very much is doing much bigger things and deservedly so. I love their mm-hmm. movies. I'm in yeah. love with Benson Moorhead and what they do. But I think there's a correlation here and there's a correlation in the way that they both started. And I, I think it's just sheer product at this point. Uh, Black Shear is just working on a little bit smaller scale and making films that aren't as marketable in a way, but that's not a bad thing. And they're just going to be going on streaming, they're just going to be doing these things and they're going to have to find their space amongst the recommendations. And I always try to sandwich things. So again, me saying, here's the siren in spring, watch them together, try to get people in the same vein. I really do think the Midnight Swim make a great watch with this. And there's just like other little movies out there you can tie it into and it might get someone more interested because if you explain the siren at face value, yeah, it sounds not like everyone's speed. And it won't God be. for I God totally forbid you look at that, that, but... that poster image before you see anything else about the film too. That is, right. yeah, that's an abomination. <laughs> and also, it like the Rasulka is a more interesting name to me. The Siren, mm-hmm. I've I, I've seen films called The Siren and The Siren and things of that nature. We all have an idea of what a siren is in our head. I see the Rasulka, and I'm like, that is a creature I'm not familiar with yet. And I'm sure it is adjacent, and it is siren adjacent, but. It just gives a little more definition, and I know the business reasons why they went with the siren. Do not get me wrong. I know exactly why that happened, but it just had some things working against it. And the Rasulka actually closed out the very first Brooklyn Brooklyn Horror Film Festival that I was working at. And just what you guys were saying, it was our closing movie, and I I forget if it was sold out or not, but it just kind of came and went. And it just kind of didn't have a lot of buzz because everyone went in wanting that closing night to be something bigger, I think. Uh, and there were the people that loved it, but you just kind of didn't hear anything afterwards. And like, that sucked. Like it just sucked to have this new movie that is so beautiful and put it on that stage. And, you know, the programmers and stuff did a tremendous job programming it. And then it just kind of like fades away into the, into the wind. And it's that reappraisal period. I I mean, I I just, I wish it was easier, I guess. (laughs) It's coming. It's coming for Blackshear. Yeah. The only thing I'll add to that, um, is just that I think now is a really, really good time for a film like this to be rediscovered. What was the Jeremy Gardner film that came out last year after Midnight? Um, after Midnight. Yep, after Pair Midnight. That. Oh, love After I Midnight. Think that, I, yeah. I think in terms of timing, the timing of this film's release was terrible. But right now, with everybody kind of tentatively coming out of COVID, with people having to relearn and reform human connections for the first time in 14 months, a film like this that is dealing with concepts of isolation and existential loss of self-identity and finding romance with all of these things pushed up against it. Like this is a great, for those that are writing listicles, this is a great post COVID horror film or dark fantasy or dark romance, whatever you want to call it. So I hope that as people start to think about like, what are some movies that are, could be inadvertently good reflections of the period that we've all had to live through 
this to me feels like one of those movies that, that you know, in 20 years, and Donato knows that this is my only criteria for if a film is good or not. In 20 years, some college senior is going to write like an amazing essay about this period in horror and how it reflected social anxiety of the pandemic and whatnot. And yeah, they're going to lump Rasulka in there and it's going to be a perfect, a perfect combination with everything else because it really fits that bill nicely. Here's hoping. I got my fingers crossed. I can wait 20 years. <laughs> yeah. All right. You're gonna be like, yes, vindicated. Yeah. Monogo is right. I gotta hurry up and have a kid so he can be the one to write that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to well, start showing it to your kid from like do, Every do the April's grandpa. The do the April's grandpa raise. It worked. All I all I know uh, yeah. is that I'm gonna have I'm gonna have a kids that are just gonna be watching this movie constantly, and you're going to retire to upstate New York and drown people because it seems cozy. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, that is the end of this particular show. Um, I want to thank you both. Like, honestly, we've been, we've been talking about having each of you on individually for a very, very long time. And the fact that we, the stars worked out just right to get you both on the show together is incredible. Um, here at the end, please take an opportunity to promote anything upcoming or social media handles or just anything, things you're not involved in, but you feel like could use a little bit more attention. Take a minute for yourselves. What do you want? What do you want to hype? Well, my Twitter handle is Katie Walsh STX. I share all my reviews there. All my reviews are on Rotten Tomatoes. Don't think I have anything specific to talk about coming out just yet, but that's where I put all my reviews and all my hot takes. So. You wrote. You recently wrote a really good piece for GQ on. Fast yes, I did. Uh, I, I posted a hot take on Twitter about Too Fast, Too Furious and it caused an uproar. Um, and then an editor from GQ was like, hey, do you wanna write this as a piece? And so I wrote a defense of Too Fast, Too Furious because I think it is a very good movie. I think it's better than the first one. So that's one instance where posting your hot takes, positive hot takes uh, can really work in your advantage. And, that, and that's all I'm posting. I'm not posting any negative hot takes these days, only positive ones, because <laughs> otherwise I get into too much trouble. But. <laughs> yeah, it worked out. I and I'm 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 watching the eighth uh, Fast and Furious movie tonight, so I'm very excited about that. I'm like very fast saturated right now. It's gonna be a nice bit of whiplash between this and that. Should be fun. I know. <laughs> yeah, it was a good little like cooling off moment for me. April, I know that you announced on Twitter that you're probably stepping away from festival stuff and other things like that for the foreseeable future as you work to push some stuff across the finish line. But if yeah. folks do want to figure out, you know, like something, right? Uh, back episodes of Switchblade Sisters or follow you on social media, what's the best places to reach out? Uh, I mean, yeah, definitely check out the back catalog of Switchblade Sisters, which is, you know, it's it's evergreen. So everyone is kind of like a little film course um, you can take. And they can follow me on Twitter, although I'm not sure why you would want to. Uh, <laughs> You're a great Baseball. source of LA politics. LA politics is, that's, that's one of the things I've learned from you and following you is just the ins and outs of the city. Yeah, it's just like, you know, if you don't, if you don't care about LA or the Dodgers. Um, I was going to say Dodgers probably, tweets. Yeah, there's a lot of Dodgers tweets um, that just come out of middle of nowhere. So uh, yeah, if you don't care about those things, it's not really a reason to follow me, I guess. But <laughs> uh, outside of that, I, I, that's probably where I'll be announcing uh, any of the new projects that I have that are uh, in those phases where you're not allowed to talk about anything, which is always extremely frustrating. So 
Yeah. That's a stay, stay tuned. tuned. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> stay tuned. Mm-hmm. Donato, real quick, where do people follow you? Talk to you. At Donato Bomb, as you see right below. Uh, Letterbox, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also live stream with me and Perry Nemiroff every Friday. Uh, I write all the things. I do all the things. I'll post all my horror takes and things you guys want to hear on, on the socials. So just follow that along. Rotten Tomatoes, as Katie said before, I'm there too. So I don't know. Just like Google my name or something. As for myself, you can follow me at Lab Splice, which is here. Um, and do please check out certifiedforgotten.com. We have gotten into a really good groove with a lot of really good writers. Please read Katie's piece on Carrie. It is kick-ass. It's one of my favorite pieces that we've published. Whatever <laughs> the direction is, I'm just generally pointing. Um, and, and yeah, follow us, uh, follow us on the podcast. You can search Certified Forgotten in all the places that you normally would find podcasts. We promise that eventually, through sheer happenstance, we'll dig up a five review or less movie that you really, really love, and we'll talk about that. So we're excited for when that day happens. But otherwise, again, April and Katie, thank you so much for joining us on the show. And we hope that everybody that is listening is taking advantage of all the other awesome programming that they have at North Bend this year. There's a lot of really good films, a lot of really good podcasts, and a couple of really good panels, one of which may include somebody who's in this room as well. So just throwing that out there. Oh. Do you want to bump that real quick before we go? Yeah. <laughs> I got you. I got you. That's right. I'm talking with Richard Kelly for the um for the Donnie Darko anniversary screening. And um he's just such a delightful person that you can learn so much from. I just it's a great conversation as he you know, as he's done so many interviews. But I just um yeah, he's great, so definitely check that out. Do you know if there's going to be a recording of that available afterwards or is it just they gotta buy tickets and do a live? That's a super good question. Um, but I, I have imagined that there's probably going to be a recording of it uh, after. Follow I... North Bend on Twitter and they will let you know that pretty soon yeah. probably. Yeah, Yeah, because I recorded it same day. So it just, <laughs> just happened. So. The onus is on them. All right. Well, thank you all and everybody else. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Bye. And, and that's that.